Uh, one amendment to the announcements, we have learned uh, that Chris has gone home, and we're glad to report that. So he is, uh, has been released and has gone home. We're thankful uh, for that. We learned that just recently. There are different kinds of preaching, of course, different kinds of sermon. There's one kind of preaching, that's the truth, but there are ways uh, to uh, deliver the message. Uh, textural sermons and topical sermons and expository sermons. That's what certainly we were taught in school and uh, were uh, given training in every kind of uh, uh, sermon from the standpoint of textual sermons where a text becomes the key to the, the sermon and then topical sermons where you simply deal with a subject like baptism or some other subject. But I believe my favorite uh, kind of preaching is expository preaching where as we have just finished doing in the epistle of James, we simply go through uh, an epistle, go through a book and look at it uh, verse by verse and expose the text, uh, thus the expository method, and uh, preach through the text in that fashion. And uh, I'd like to do that again on Sunday nights beginning tonight with another uh, epistle uh, from the New Testament. And it happens to be uh, not just the first epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Thessalonians, as my Bible has it headed, but it's the first epistle of Paul, period. It's the first epistle that, that he wrote. The first epistle to the Thessalonians, written in about A.D. 52 or A.D. 53, from the city of Corinth, as he wrote to uh, these brethren at Thessalonica who were converted on the second missionary journey and the background for the epistle is seen in, or the background for the establishment of the church is seen back in Acts chapter 17, the book we're studying on Sunday morning. And in Acts 17, you may recall that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came down to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews, and for three Sabbath days, Paul uh, preached uh, in the uh, synagogue, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And verse 4 of Acts 17 tells us, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Silas was a part of that second missionary journey, you recall, based upon the disagreement that Paul and, and Barnabas had about taking John Mark with them on their second missionary journey. And so they decided to go their separate ways after they had that, had that disagreement, and Paul took Silas with him uh, on the second missionary journey, a part of which was in Thessalonica, where the church was established. And then after Paul had left them, probably some six months later, having come to Corinth and having sent uh, Timothy to, to see how they were doing, when Timothy returned to him at Corinth, it was then, it is believed, that this first epistle to the Thessalonians was written. As Paul wrote, among other things, to express his, his uh, joy about the report that Timothy had brought him concerning their spiritual welfare. Because they were doing well, though they had some misapprehensions, some misunderstandings, uh, which we will cover as we go through this book. But one of which, of course, as you, I'm sure, remember, was they, their misapprehension about the second coming of Christ. And believing that, mistakenly so, that Christ was going to return 
imminently in their lifetime. And as a part of that misapprehension, because some of their loved ones had died uh, before Christ came, they were under the misapprehension, misimpression that those loved ones were going to lose their reward. And so that's part of what Paul wrote to correct, and we'll get to that in chapter 4, of course. Uh, So the second coming is a recurring theme. Uh, throughout this uh, first epistle to the Thessalonians. But it's a great uh, epistle, of course, as is all of God's Word, much to learn uh, from it. And so tonight we will uh, begin to look at the first verses of the first chapter of, uh, of this epistle to the Thessalonians. The city of Thessalonica uh, was an important city in Achaia, Achaia being the old name for uh, what we know as Greece uh, today. And today, you can still visit Thessalonica, though it is not called Thessalonica, but Salonica uh, is its uh, modern uh, Greek uh, name. But in the beautiful area of Macedonia, the city of Salonica, the old Thessalonica, of course, is still uh, still there. And so this epistle was written to the church there. And as we begin to look at the early verses, we see a typical greeting extended from the Apostle Paul to the church here, and he includes with him Silas and Timothy, who were with him at Corinth at this time, we believe, and he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus or Silvanus is the same as Silas, Silas being a contracted form of the name uh, Silvanus, uh, and so we are talking about one and the same person here. This is Silas, uh, whom Paul first met uh, back in Acts 15 as he went down from Jerusalem to to Antioch. That's where he uh, first encountered Silas. And then as we've already mentioned, Silas was with Paul on the second uh, missionary uh, journey. Back in Acts 15.32, incidentally, Silas is uh, mentioned along with Judas uh, themselves being prophets, as they are called there, they exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And so Silas was a faithful laborer in the Lord, and of course Timothy is, uh, is a constant companion of Paul, who was with him on so much of his uh, missionary work, and of course uh, is often called Paul's son in the gospel, uh, who was from Lystra and is believed to have been converted there uh, on a missionary journey when Paul came to Lystra. So these two men are with Paul, and the address is to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here that Paul, incidentally, does not identify himself beyond just simply his name. Uh, Whereas in other of his epistles, he identifies himself as Paul the Apostle. Uh, Why didn't he uh, uh, identify himself as the Apostle here? It may very well be because at this point in time, Paul's apostleship was not being questioned as it was later by many of these Judaizing teachers who were questioning his authority, who were calling into question whether he was really an apostle, and so uh, he he didn't reinforce that here. That may very well be. He was well known to the church at Thessalonica. This was probably six months after he had established it, and so therefore that appellation uh, of uh, apostle may have been left off uh, for those are one or more reasons. But nonetheless, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Now notice the church of the Thessalonians. This was not the church belonging to the Thessalonians. The church is not named for its members. Uh, therefore, the Christian church is not, uh, is not a, uh, a name that gives, uh, 
gives glory to God, but rather to the members or to the practice of Christianity. But the the uh, appellations that we see, the designations that we see for the church, as in Romans sixteen sixteen, the churches of Christ salute you, as Paul wrote there. That is the churches belonging to Christ, the congregations that comprise the universal church of Christ, the church belonging to Christ. So. As Paul writes here, he is not suggesting that the church of the Thessalonians is the church belonging to the Thessalonians, but rather the church that what? Is comprised of the Thessalonians. And so it is made up of, uh, of the Thessalonians. It's interesting that you have a, a similar uh, expression in the, uh, in the book of, uh, of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, you have the the church of the firstborn referred to in, in uh, Hebrews 12, 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who were registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. I believe that here the church of the Thessalonians is used in the same way that the church of the firstborn is used in Hebrews 12, 23. That is, in Hebrews 12, 23, it's the church comprised of the firstborn ones. It's interesting that many times you will see various names given for the church. And among those names given for the church, you will see listed the church of the firstborn. I do not personally believe that that is one of the names for the church. I believe that is just the same as the church of the Thessalonians here, that it's simply the church that it's being described, but specifically the church comprised of whom? the firstborn ones, that is, those who are the elect of God, those who are Christians. It's simply another designation for Christians because the mistake, I believe, that is made many times in designating the church of the firstborn as one of the names for the church is that people think the church of the firstborn refers to Christ as the firstborn. It cannot refer to Christ in Hebrews 12, 23 as the church of the firstborn. Why? Because firstborn in that text is plural not singular. It is literally the church of the firstborn ones. That is the church made up of Christians. The church made up of the firstborn ones as they are designated there. And here in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1 you have exactly the same usage to the church of the Thessalonians. That is the church made up of the Thessalonians. That's a description of those who comprise the church. And so I think that we need to appreciate the fact that when we designate the church in terms of possession, whose church is it? It is always the church of Christ. It is always the church of God. That is, uh, it is sometimes used, as in 1 Corinthians, the church of God, the church of Christ. When it is in, intended to show possession, it is either the church of God or the church of Christ, or sometimes just the church. But whose church is it? It is the Lord's church, not ours, not ours. We comprise the church, but it doesn't belong to us. And I believe that's how it's used here. To the church of the Thessalonians, yes, indeed. That's a phrase that is often used to show possession, but it is not always the case in the original that it is used to show possession. And I do not believe it shows possession either here or in Hebrews 12:23, but rather it describes it describes who's in the church here or who these people are. We are the church at White Oak. We are the church at White Oak. 
This is the church of Christ at Plato. This is the church of the Thessalonians that is made up of the Thessalonians. And so it is the church made up of the Thessalonians where? In God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who were in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, depicting the close unity that existed between these Christians at Thessalonica and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a, it is a compliment, in effect, that Paul issues in his greeting to them that they are the church not comprised simply of individual human beings who have devised their own doctrines and formed their own creeds, but they are the church in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says something that we see so regularly in his epistles, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's characteristic of, of so many of Paul's epistles. And as we have talked about in reference to Paul himself, I do not believe that uh, a man has walked the earth outside of the Christ himself who was both man and God, who understood or appreciated the grace of God more than did the Apostle Paul. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he wrote, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all. The indication of the other apostles, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He appreciated the grace of God to the fullest possible extent of a human being's understanding because he understood that he had been a great persecutor of the church. He had been given the opportunity to change, and he did change, and he understood that it was the grace of God that brought about that change, that is, that made it possible. The grace of God through his obedience, his obedient faith. And what flowed from the grace of God that allowed Paul to change his life and once that life was changed, what did it result in? Peace. And so it's not surprising that Paul would write grace and peace because, because of the grace of God, he had peace. And had it not been for the grace of God, he would never have enjoyed the peace that surpasses all understanding. But isn't that true of all of us tonight here who are Christians? Should we not have that same appreciation from the, for the grace of God that has enabled us to learn the truth, hear the truth, and obey the truth, and to know the peace that surpasses all understanding? And should not that knowledge of that peace motivate us, motivate us to live for God and Christ and to give thanks? As verse 2 reminds us that Paul was constantly doing. Notice it. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. In the same epistle, a little bit later on, there will be found, of course, the very familiar text in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, which says what? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And Paul practiced what he preached in regard to prayer, didn't he? He prayed without ceasing. That is, he prayed regularly and constantly and gave thanks for these Thessalonians. In what way? Verse 3 is significant. Remembering without ceasing what three things here? Your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ 
in the sight of God our Father. Oh, how important these phrases are. Remembering without ceasing your what? Not just your faith, though at times faith is commended without the words work of, obviously, but always includes a working faith. Because any faith that pleases God has to be a working faith. But Paul makes that abundantly clear here as he expresses it in this way. Your work of faith. Faith has to work in order to be commended. Faith has to work in order to be acceptable to God. And we've said that so often. But it needs to be said often because we live in a world where that is constantly denied. And faith alone is advocated. But it's the work of faith. I've often said that I believe Galatians 5, 6, another passage from one of Paul's epistles, summarizes better than any passage I can think of what we are to be as Christians. The summary description of the Christian life is found, I believe, in Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working by love. There it is. That's who we are. We are a people whose faith works, but motivated by what? Love. Faith working by love. And Paul gives both expressions here when he says, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, the fact that your faith is working, but also that your love is laboring. And this word labor carries the idea here of intense labor, uh, strife and toil, difficult uh, labor, uh, things uh, that, uh, that, that stretch us to the limit at times uh, in terms of our, our labors in the kingdom. But despite the difficulty of those labors, despite the discouragements that may come amidst our efforts to labor, we nonetheless labor because of love. And if our labor, labors are difficult, if our strife is severe as we strive uh, in the, in, uh, the uh, world in which we live to live the Christian life, if we have love as our motivator, we can, we can continue to labor successfully. And what about patience of hope? Patience is the idea of what in Scripture? Endurance. Steadfastness under trial at times. Standing up under trial. What is it that will enable us to stand the trials? Well, love, we've already seen, will enable us to labor, even though that labor may be hard at times. But what about endurance under stress? What about enduring faithfully under trying times, sickness, and other things that, that befall us, as we talked about some this morning. What is it that will enable us to endure? He ties endurance with hope. Never lose hope. Never lose hope. And the child of God has no reason to lose hope if he's the faithful child of God. Regardless of what may befall him, regardless of what may challenge him, he can endure it in hope, in hope, because nothing can take away hope. We can take it away from ourselves if we turn away from the Lord, but our hope, which biblically defined is desire, coupled with expectation, desire to go to heaven, coupled with the expectation of going to heaven, we cannot have that arbitrarily taken away from us, but we can lose it. We can lose it, and sometimes... 
we lose it under trial and we simply say, I've had it. I can't take this anymore. I'm giving up hope. Endurance of hope or patience of hope. Where, though? Where is the work of faith? Where is the labor of love? Where is the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ? That's where it is. And who is it that is aware of our work of faith? Who is it that is most importantly looking at our labor of love and recognizing our labor of love and is fully cognizant of our, of our patience and endurance and the hope that we have? In the, here it is, in the sight of God, our God and Father. In Jesus Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Who is it that really matters in terms of who sees what we do and who knows what we do and what our labors are in the Lord? Is it our fellow members of the church? Is that what's important? No. No, we have members right here who do things on a regular basis for which they seek absolutely no recognition at all. In fact, they prefer not to have it. They just go about their business doing good for others quietly and lovingly. And many times those labors are not even known by others. But they are done in the sight of our God and Father. He knows, He sees, and He will reward. And so as our faith works, and as our love labors, and as our endurance with hope continues in Jesus Christ, we have the full assurance that God does not forget those labors. God does not forget. God knows. And there's something else Paul says he knows here about the Thessalonians in verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Knowing your election by God. In other words, all he's doing here is expressing his confidence that the church at Thessalonica is a true church of Christ. That it is a faithful church of Christ because of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. In other words, they demonstrate that they have truly been elected by God because they are living as they should. That election, as we have talked about in recent times when we studied Calvinism in some detail, has nothing to do with individuals being elected to salvation, other individuals being, uh, being elected to uh, damnation, and that number not being capable of being changed by even one soul. No, that has nothing to do with what the Bible refers to when it talks about election. It is simply the fact that God has elected or predetermined that only those who obey the truth as these Thessalonians had done and who are living the truth as these Thessalonians were doing are those who are called the elect of God. They're simply the saved. Those who have answered the call of the gospel. And in Paul's second Thessalonian letter, you remember that he uses that term itself in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 when he writes, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. These are these same brethren now at Thessalonica, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. How, though? That's the question. How did he choose them for salvation? Here it is. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were among the elect because they had obeyed the gospel, answering the call of the gospel. And what God chose ahead of time was that all who obey the gospel will be saved if they remain faithful. All who do not obey the gospel and live according to it will be lost. That's what God predetermined, the plan. Not the individual man, but the plan. And so they are simply referred to here by Paul in verse 4 as the elect of God. That is, those who've been elected how? By responding to the gospel call. He makes that abundantly clear in his second letter to them in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 14. But he also makes it clear right here. If you just stay with the context, doesn't he? Because right after he says, we know of your election, we're confident of your election, that you are truly the church, knowing your election by, our, by God, the very next stroke of the pen is what? For our gospel did not come to you in word only. So what does that do? That ties the election of God to what? The gospel. The gospel. One becomes the elect of God by what? Obeying the gospel. That's clear from verse 5, really, isn't it? You don't have to go elsewhere. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. That is, it was not simply uh, words uh, that we would, uh, would exchange with, with each other in everyday conversation or the words uh, of men uh, as such, but also in power. It was the powerful word. Now, what certainly may be included here is the idea of miraculous gifts that confirmed the word and the reference to the Holy Spirit and much assurance here. But, but it is also true, is it not, that even in today's world, even at this very moment in time, what Paul says here is still true even though miraculous gifts have ceased. And that is that the gospel does not come today in word only, that is, words that man uses, but the word, which is what? Inherently powerful. Even without miraculous confirmation of the Spirit, there's no need for such because the word of God has that power within it. It can change lives as no other word of man can do. It can completely transform individuals from heathenism to holiness, from paganism to purity of heart and mind, because it has that kind of power, even without the attestation of it by the miraculous element which was needed before we had this in its completed form. But what we have in its completed form has the same power today that Paul spoke of here in this text. And didn't he make that affirmation in Romans 1.16? That very familiar text when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, it, it alone, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What Paul is saying there is the gospel without confirmation of miracle by miracle has that kind of power. The Word of God today. Well, we know that to be the case, don't we? We see it demonstrated time and time again. How many of you who are Christians tonight were converted by, by the gospel 
which was accompanied by miracles. I can tell you not a single one of you. <laughs> not a single one of you. You were converted by the what? The Word of God. Without the need for the miraculous element. Because the Word of God has that kind of power. And when it reaches good and honest hearts, it will produce fruit. Fruit unto God. And so the gospel, let us never forget, is not just words, but the all-powerful word. And when it is in combination with honest hearts, it brings forth complete transformation. And it's tragic today that people are still looking for a better felt than told experience, that they are still looking for some direct operation of the Spirit, that they're still, still contending for the miraculous when there's absolutely no need for it because the miraculous served its purpose, brought us to that which is complete and whole, and that which is perfect has come. Therefore, that which is in part, the miraculous has been done away. Oh, the providence of God hasn't been done away, and we pray to God, and He answers through His providence. And we believe that. But we don't need miracles. We don't need miracles for God to answer our prayers. And we don't need miracles for God to convert us and to turn us from idols to the living God, as later in this same chapter Paul will say the gospel did for these Thessalonians. It turned them from idols to serving the living God. And we'll conclude with, with this uh, verse here, verse 5, and the Lord willing continue with our study of 1 Thessalonians as Paul continues to commend them in verse 6 for having become followers, receiving the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit and becoming the right kind of example to so many people and how much good was accomplished as a result of their faith toward God which went out so that people didn't have to say anything. Their faith by their works that faith spoke for itself. What about your faith tonight? What does it say to those around you? What does it say to your family? What does it say to friends, to fellow workers? What does it say to those with whom you come in contact? Hopefully your life expresses the kind of faith that was characteristic of these Thessalonians in this particular time as Paul wrote to them to commend them. But it can't be speaking good things if you have not been obedient to the faith by obeying the gospel of Christ. But that can change this very night. If you will believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, act upon that belief by repenting of your sins, by confessing that Jesus is the Christ, and by being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins, you'll rise to walk in newness of life. You'll rise to be that example that you need to be that others may see your faith, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope as you continue to live the Christian life. It may be that someone's here tonight whose patience of hope is not there as it once was. That hope, that hope has waned because you have strayed 
and need to come home to your first love as a wayward child of God. If that's your need, we plead with you to do that. And we are eager to pray with you and for you to the God who loves you supremely and who forgives completely. As we stand to sing, will you come?